Over the years, I've talked with plenty of people who are burdened by guilt. For some, it's about a mistake that they made when they were young, something they deeply regret and wish they could put behind them. I once talked to a guy who had committed a felony in his 20s, had been jailed, and now, even years later, he found that it was difficult for him to get a job or even rent an apartment. Last year, I talked to somebody that I hadn't seen in many years. His biggest regret is a divorce, a marriage that didn't go well and ended. But the bigger regret was the impact that that divorce had had on his now teenage son. He said, in part, his struggles are me, about me. People have told me about infidelity, about addictions, about shady business dealings, about unkind, even cruel things they said to someone close to them. In every case, they wish they could have a do-over. But since they can't, they struggle finding forgiveness and unburdening themselves of guilt. But there's another group of people I've met who seem totally unburdened by guilt of any kind. Now, it's not that they don't say they have faults. They would admit that they're not perfect, but that's not their focus. Their focus is on others. In fact, they love to play this game of gotcha. Social media is full of these types, self-proclaimed watchdogs who are constantly on the alert for others who mess up. And when they find something, they rush to judgment. Unconcerned with getting the facts right, they post whatever info they find as quickly as they can. They don't provide perspective or context, instead wording things in the most scandalous way possible. Self-righteous to a fault, they take joy in making these stories known rather than feeling sadness and compassion for the individual. They oversimplify and to make the strongest case they can, they include all of the most salacious details. We see this in politics and we also sadly see it among Christians. It's important to hold people accountable, so don't get me wrong, but it's far too often we seem to cross the line from accountability to character assassination. And for what purpose? Sometimes for no other reason than to be able to look down on somebody, a public figure, in the middle of a public failing. Where there should be compassion and grace, there's nothing but judgment and contempt. How Christian is that? Jesus once told a story about both of these kinds of people. Those burdened by guilt, and the one we're going to talk about today was as guilty as they come. And those who were good and knew they were good, so good in fact that they delighted in making others look bad. The good guy in the story is a Pharisee, and at the opposite end of the respectability spectrum is a tax collector. That might surprise you to know that Pharisees were deeply admired in the ancient Jewish world. They were known for their moral purity, and they took pride in their scrupulous adherence to the Old Testament law. They often went well beyond what was required and consequently, they believed that God would bless them for their righteousness. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were deeply disliked. They'd made a deal with the Romans to collect taxes and in exchange for paying the Romans a guaranteed minimum, they were permitted to collect an extra fee or two for their trouble. The system was ripe for corruption and extortion became built into the job. They were viewed as traitors and sellouts and were known to be corrupt, untrustworthy, and irreligious. There were no group of people more despised by those in the time in, the, in Jesus' day. So in our day, we have politicians and hedge fund managers and white supremacists and robocallers, and in their day, they had tax collectors. Here's how Jesus begins this story in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. 
He says the Pharisee stood, by the way, in the temple by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus starts his story with the more respectable of the two. And the first thing to notice about the Pharisee's prayer is that it really isn't much of a prayer. Mostly he's informing God how good he is. He doesn't praise God. He doesn't thank him for anything. He doesn't acknowledge his shortcomings. He doesn't even ask him for something. Instead, he gives God a report on how good he's been and how bad everyone else is behaving. Virtue signaling and shaming all in the same, at the same time. He's a proud man, proud of what he's accomplished and he wants God to know about it. His first argument is, thank you God that I'm not like other people. And then he gives a list of all the people he considers to be morally inferior. And at the end of the list, he mentions the most sinful of them all, the tax collector who's standing within earshot. Then he tells God how pious he is. God, did you notice that I fast twice a week? Assuming, of course, that God's impressed. Now, for context, the Jews were supposed to fast, although they were only required to do so once a year. So what he is telling God is that he is a hundred times more righteous than the average Joseph in Israel. And then he mentions his giving. I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, that was actually an additional tenth above all the other taxes and fees that he paid. So again... What he's doing is trying to position himself to make himself look good. You know, I'm on the high priest golden circle giving club. So you'll see that at the report at the end of the year. It's clear that this Pharisee thinks that he's special. God must be so pleased with me, he thinks. He's lucky to have somebody like me on his team. But is he right? Is he really as good as he thinks he is? Well, in some ways, yes. He's not a thief. He's not a murderer. He's not an adulterer. All that's good but he doesn't seem to get it. There's no sense of sin or need in his prayer, no humble dependence upon God. In fact, his faith really isn't in God. His faith is in his own righteous achievement. That's what he wants God to know about. Now, this Pharisee is not unique in history. There have always been people who compete to be more religious than everyone else. Even people who don't consider themselves religious do this, competing to be more green or physically fit or socially aware. So why do we do this? In part, because it makes us think that we're good people. But for righteous people, it also allows us to think that maybe God owes us something. If we've done whatever it is God asks of us, then we deserve something in return. Our goodness then is a bargain with God, a quid pro quo that obligates God to do something for us. Shifting gears now, if the Pharisee is playing to the crowd and trying to tell God how good he is, the tax collector does the opposite. He's standing alone, not because he feels he's superior to the rest of the people in the temple, but because he feels he's so unworthy. He don't, won't even follow the convention of the day by looking up to the heavens at God as he prays. Instead, with shame, he looks at the ground. He starts his prayer not with words, but by beating his chest, an expression of remorse for his sinful heart. And then he says, with tears in his eyes, 
God, have mercy on me, a sinner. By the way, it's possible to translate what he says here even stronger. Not just calling himself a sinner, but the sinner. I am the sinner, he tells God. Have mercy on me. He's lived a dishonest life. He's extorted money from hundreds, if not thousands of people. He knows he can't do anything to make it right. His only chance is that God might show him mercy. The only way to be relieved of this burden of guilt is for God to forgive him. And so against hope, he prays this passionate prayer. Jesus wants us to hear the difference between these two men. The difference between a Pharisee, a man who's conscious of his own goodness, and a tax collector, fully aware of his sinfulness. The smug, arrogant Pharisee who's confident of his good standing with God, and the tax collector, the lowest of the low, who knows he doesn't even have a leg to stand on. That's the conclusion those hearing the story for the first time would have reached, except that the story has a surprise ending. Now, to be fair, Jesus has already given his listeners a hint about where this story is headed. I didn't read this line, but here's how he starts the whole, the whole episode. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. So he's given a clue where he's headed here. And with that, he launches into the story. Now he finishes the story with a verdict. Who's the good guy? I tell you that this man, pointing at the tax collector or referencing the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. So to everyone's surprise, the good guy is the bad guy and the bad guy is the good guy. It was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who found favor with God. Saved not by his goodness, because he is clearly a bad man, but because he had done the one thing that God required of him and requires of us. He faced the truth about himself and threw himself on God's mercy. Those listening were still trying to process what they heard. Why? Well, because Jesus also said at the very end, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Getting right with God comes not through piling up a winning streak of good deeds. It comes through genuine sorrow and regret for our sins. Turning to God and asking him for mercy, for his compassion and forgiveness. Now I want to clear up a couple of things here that could be misunderstandings. And the first is that Jesus is not indifferent to sin. He hates sin. He wants us to do the right thing. Secondly, it isn't that doing good isn't important. It is. Doing good, though, is a natural outgrowth of loving God. But what Jesus is getting at here is that God's mercy and grace don't come to us solely for doing, through doing good things. The problem is that no matter how hard we try, we might not be good enough. In fact, the danger of religion is that it gives us a false sense of security. We'll do what this man did and grow proud and look down on others. But God's mercy reaches down to those who acknowledge their need for forgiveness. Those who do this find that they will hear some of the most comforting words in the Bible. This man, the tax collector, went home justified before God. The lesson for us is that we're not to look down on others. In fact, we are much more like the tax collector. Those who, when given just a moment's reflection, become convinced that the only thing we have to say to God is, be merciful to me, Lord, a sinner. The kingdom of God is built on grace, not on achievement. God's love's not earned, but it's freely given to those who know that they need it, no matter how unworthy we might be. So what are we to do with all of this? How can we live this out? 
The first thing we need to stop doing is trying to justify ourselves, to drop the pretense that we're better than someone else. And it is easy to compare, to find someone, or better yet, a group of someones who are messing up big time, a group of misbehavior, uh, misbehaviors who make us feel by comparison good about ourselves. But in just six verses, Jesus obliterates this option. He makes it clear that the only sins we're to focus on are our own. The only repenting that needs to be done is us confessing our sins. If that sounds painful, it's because it is. The hardest thing to do is to face up to our junk, to own up to a long list of failures, some of which no one even knows about. The bitterness, the lust, the anger, the greed that lives in our hearts that no one but God can see. But think about it. You could ignore it. You could go on faking it, pretending that you're much better than the average guy. But you know it's a lie. It's miserable to live with a scorecard mindset, to constantly track your own points as well as to keep tabs on the failures of others. How much better is it to confess our sins, however painful that might be in the moment, and then be done with it? To experience God's mercy and forgiveness, to be unburdened of the guilt that plagues our minds. The best way to live is not taking to Twitter to point out the faults we see in others. It's not to tell God all the ways that we um, compare favorably to others. It comes at looking in the face of God, a God who is holy and just and merciful and confessing our sins and then experiencing the incredible relief that comes from God's amazing grace. Several years ago, I was listening to a podcast um, and heard the story of a woman named Auburn. The story began when she was 29 years old. She was curled up in a fetal position, a filthy piece of carpet in a cluttered apartment. She was in the midst of a horrible withdrawal from a drug addiction. And in her hand, she had a little folded up piece of paper on which was written a phone number. Her husband was out at the moment trying to get a hold of some drugs that they both needed. And sleeping in their bedroom was her little baby boy. As she said in the story, she wasn't going to win any Mother of the Year awards. Somehow in the confusion, that pain-filled moment, she decided to get clean. Otherwise, she knew she'd soon lose the most precious thing that she had, this little baby. She was so desperate that she decided that she would call the phone number that she had on that piece of paper in her hand. It was something that her mother had sent her. Her mother said, Auburn, this is a Christian counselor. Maybe sometime you could give him a call. It was 2 a.m. in the morning, but she punched in the number. And a man answered and said, hello. Hi, Auburn said. I got this number from my mother. Do you think you could maybe talk to me? He said, yes, of course. What's going on? She told him that she was scared, that her marriage had gotten pretty bad. And then she started to tell him other truths, like maybe, just maybe, she had a drug addiction. Through it all, this man listened. He was kind and he was gentle. Tell me more, he'd say, or mm, that must have hurt. The man stayed up with her all night, just being there until the sun rose, and by then she was feeling calm. The panic she'd had earlier had passed, and she was feeling okay. She was so grateful to him that she said, I really appreciate what you've done for me tonight. How long have you been a Christian counselor? It was a long pause, and he said, Auburn, please don't hang up. I'm so afraid to tell you this, but you got the wrong number. I'm not a therapist but I've really enjoyed talking with you. Auburn didn't hang up on him. She never got his name. She never spoke to him again. 
But the next day she felt completely different. She discovered that there was this completely random love in the universe and that it could be unconditional and that some of it was for her. Somehow in the weeks and months that followed, it became possible for her to become a teetotaling single parent and to raise that precious baby boy into a magnificent young scholar and athlete who 22 years later graduated from college with honors. Auburn concluded her story with this. She said, in the deepest, darkest, blackest night of despair, if you can get just one pinhole of light, all of grace comes rushing in. Let's pray. Father, help us give up any pretense of being better than others. Help us to see ourselves as we really are. But also don't let that glimpse of our true selves lead us into despair. In fact, no matter what's in our past, may we find the mercy we need. May we be able to unburden ourselves of any guilt that we've been carrying. And may we find in your son Jesus the grace our hearts so desperately need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.